Psalm 73. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes... O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Father, as your risen Son exposed Himself through your written revelation to His disciples on that day of His resurrection, so we pray that you would come in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would take those same Scriptures that the Lord Jesus had, coming from His mouth to His eleven faithful disciples on that glorious day. When two earlier had their hearts burn within them as Jesus explained the Scriptures to them. So we pray that your mighty 
person. The Holy Spirit will so come here and reveal Christ to us in Your Word that our hearts too would burn within us. That we would see You for who You truly are. Not the imaginary God that so conveniently fits a carnal life. A half Christianity that's none at all. No, we want Christ in all His fullness. So we pray for those especially among us who will not pray for themselves. For those maybe even who have named the name of Christ for a long time but can't remember anything of a real life-transforming encounter with Him. Oh God, would You come and interrupt and invade? Pull scales from eyes like You did from the Apostle Paul and let the beauty of Christ flood a soul. Would You save sinners in this place? Sanctify the saints. And in every heart, young and old, we pray that You would enthrone Christ Jesus as Lord. This we pray for Your well-deserved glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. The nearness of God is my God. Now, I meet a lot of people who don't see any real significance in those words because they're under the impression that God is always near. But is God always near? Well, if you think so, I can immediately tell you something about yourself. You haven't read your Bible. Or if you read it, you didn't really read it. The Bible is full of illustrations of God drawing near and God drawing far away. And the Apostle James wrote in the fourth chapter, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. One of our great tasks and glorious privileges at one and the same time is to draw near to God with a glorious understanding that as we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. Did you ever ask, what is the greatest attraction in heaven? Is it that the streets are paved with gold? Well, look, to be quite a candid, I can slip and fall on concrete. I can imagine what it would be like walking on streets of gold. Now I know God can make non-slip gold, but I don't find streets of gold any great attraction. 
It's not that I'm against it. It's just that it doesn't really seem that consequential. And also we are told that in heaven there is no night. Well, now, honestly, I like night. <laughs> My dear wife and I have a little simple pact. We've had it for the 50 years of our marriage. The last person to bed is responsible for putting out the lights. Now, I want to say this carefully, but she's a little bit on the slow side. Now, what I mean by that is it takes her a good bit more work to get to bed than it does me. When I'm ready for bed, I'm in bed. Just takes a jiffy to get there. But she's got to do, you know, I won't go into details. And many a night I have said, hurry up, Maggie, and shoot out the lights. And it's incredible when the darkness descends and sleep comes. So again, I'm not against a place where there is no night. I'm sure that somehow the Lord will make it wonderful. But I happen to like the night. I like the day better. Isn't it wonderful when you rise morning after morning, before the sun, and you see the day coming. So, neither streets of gold, nor endless days, seem all that attractive to at least some of us. But, when you begin to talk about who will be there, that's when heaven gets interesting. My own dear mother and father, who loved Christ and lived godly lives. And I look forward to joining them again. And at my age, honestly, a lot of my friends have already gone. And I miss them. And I'm longing to see them again. Then I've got a multitude of friends that I've never met. People like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, Daniel Rowland, Samuel Iverson. Go on, you get the picture. How wonderful to be among all those saints who have gone before. But you still haven't got to the heart of the question. What is the great attraction of heaven? Isn't it wonderful that the great attraction is our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is, isn't it perfectly glorious that we can say there is one thing that marks heaven that has never marked earth and that is the unbroken presence
presence of God. Now here in this lifetime, though we seek with all of our hearts not only to love Christ, but to lead holy lives, and then when, just like that, we sin, and we lose that sense of God's presence. And we live at a time like this, when the church itself, by and large, is living in sin and has lost the presence of God in its midst. But in heaven, the unbroken presence of God. But it is not really fair to speak of the great attraction of heaven without saying at least a word about the great dread of hell. What is the most awful aspect of hell? Is it that in hell there is a fire that never goes out, that burns and burns and burns and burns. And forever you are suffering in the midst of this fire, but it is never extinguished. That's a dreadful thought. But that's not the worst. There are the worms that never die. Imagine being in a place of constant burning with worms forever crawling all over you. But worse than that are those who are there in hell. There is no escaping, unleashed sin. People crying out their curses day and night against God Almighty. But once more, we haven't touched at the most awful aspect of hell. And what is that? Has it occurred to you? Has it gripped you? Has it transformed your thinking and your action? The most awful aspect of hell is that in hell one can never say or think sooner or later God will come. For just as heaven is marked by the unbroken presence of God, hell is marked by his unbroken absence. And imagine being there a hundred million years and never in all that time even a ray of hope. Now the passage we are looking at this evening is the continuation of the passage we were looking at last night. Let's join together in our Bibles in the reading of First Peter chapter 1.
Have you found your place? Will you follow carefully as we read together the word of the Lord? First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various tri trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. As to the salvation, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you 
made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what persons or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in those things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels long to look into. Therefore, gird up your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the Lamb of God. Christ for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have been obedient to the truth, purified your souls 
for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and the abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord in abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now last night, we were looking just very swiftly at verses 1 to 12, and then we spent the rest of the time focusing on verses 13 to 16. And I'll take just a moment to, of review for those who were here, and of assistance for those who were not here. So you'll have a sense of the setting of the passage we focus upon tonight. I began last night with the story of Cain and the words spoken to him by God. Why is your countenance fallen? And then those very straight and severe words, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is toward you. You must master it. And I said that what we have in verses 1 to 12 is a series of 12 wonderful truths that turn our countenance upward. And if you're downturned in your, in your countenance, sit down with verses 1 to 12. And let God lift the corners of your mouth and the whole of your spirit in realization of what God himself has done for you. Then in the light of those twelve countenance-lifting truths, we focused upon the five orders given to us in verses 13 to 16, number one, good your minds for action. Number two, keep sober in spirit. Number three, fix your hope continually on the grace that is to be given to you. And then number four, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. 
And number five, like the Holy One, be holy. Now those are commands and not suggestions as to how life might be more pleasant and useful. Absolute commands. Every believer has those five commands in front of them. But now, what we've got is a series of three incentives, or if you like, prods. Uh, did you ever work with cattle? Did you ever see a cattle prod? Not very pleasant, I expect, but effective nonetheless. We have here in this passage before us tonight three incentives to obey those five things that were set in front of us requiring our obedience. Number one, fear. Number two, considering the price Christ paid for you. And number three, understanding the incredible vastness, beauty, and glory of the salvation that Christ purchased for each one who will truly believe and enjoy his salvation. So let's begin with the issue of fear. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Now, the fear is not a very popular subject. In fact, I expect virtually no sermons are preached in America in the course of a year on the subject of fear from the standpoint of this passage. But now, here is this prod, this incentive to obeying the five things that precede. Spend your life in fear. Now, what does that mean? And uh, why is it consequential? And uh, what truly is it all about? Now, just think with me. Any child can join us in our thinking at this point. Fear. There's the fear of the finite before the infinite. Now, maybe that doesn't sound as if a child could grasp it, but I can put it in language children can understand. We're like 
little pieces of sand. We are as nothing. We are here for a little while, and then we are gone. But there is always the everlasting God. We are the finite. He is the infinite. That ought to create a very sober sense within us. And it ought to prod us toward an ongoing fear. If you have had seven days of the most blessed holiness that you ever enjoyed in all your life, you're still nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. If you have made some magnificent achievements in life, they don't amount to anything. One has only to look at the old man on the platform to know that we are infinite. Oh, I mean, oh, wow, what a mistake. That <laughs> we are finite. We've only been around for a little more than eight years, and I'm fading fast. Did you notice how many times I stumbled in the reading of God's Word? I can't see very well. Some days my sight is so bad, I have to ask someone to do the reading for me. I'm weak. My hands shake. I give continual evidence that I'm finite. Maybe it's a little less apparent in you because you're young. But we have that appropriate fear of the finite before the infinite. We ought not to forget that. We have also the appropriate fear of the lesser before the greater. Were you ever with a truly wealthy person? Maybe you felt some inferiority. Did you ever go to preach in a huge church and everybody there was immaculate and your shoes look like my shoes tonight, scuffed up? There are many ways in which we are frequently reminded that we are less than others in some way, but all of us are as nothing in comparison with God. Then we have the fear of the debtor before his creditor. Everything you are, everything you have, every single breath you have drawn throughout the entirety of your life, you are indebted to God for. Every brilliant thought in your brain, every act of kindness you have done, everything about you that has any worth or consequence whatsoever, you are in debt for. 
And very few people who call themselves Christians feel adequately that death. But when one realizes the immense price that Christ paid for our salvation and the glorious array of salvation of which we'll be speaking shortly, then that sets that sense of indebtedness, that sense of the debtor owing the one who has granted so much increases. I don't know how you feel, but I always hate any kind of indebtedness. And I can't wait until that debt is paid in full. But we don't have any chance, no hope whatsoever, of paying in full the debt we owe to the Lord God Almighty. Thus, it's always the case of the debtor before the giver. Then there's the fear of the dependent before the source of supply. There's the fear of the undressed before the fully clothed. Often when we're thinking about our dear Savior and we're reading of his passion and we read that they stripped him of his clothing in a public place. It goes deep down. There is a sensitivity in most of us when we are undressed or even underdressed. We feel a fear, a discomfort, a, a sense of hoping somehow not to be seen or in some fashion to escape. And then there's the fear of filth before purity. You understand what I'm suggesting. All of us, like it or not, are in such a situation that we have incredible reasons to live in fear. And certainly the fear of the lawbreaker before the judge. If I may mention my dear wife again. She's a very law-abiding citizen. But she came home one day when I was there and said, I was arrested today. What? You? Yes, I, I was going 45 miles an hour in a 35-mile speed zone. But I didn't know it was a speed zone. And I got a ticket. But it was unjust, and I'm going to fight it. So you'd have to know my wife to appreciate this, but... Uh, she said, I'm going to court. Well, she went to court and she sat through the brief trials of three or four in front of her. When her name was called and she stood before the judge, she broke into tears. And the judge quickly instructed someone to 
bring her some water and try and calm her down. And she just stood there shaking and crying. And the judge said, case dismissed. <laughs> now, I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> but it happened. But there is that sense of the lawbreaker before the lawkeeper. You understand what I'm saying. We have multiple grounds for fear. And fear can be and should be a powerful incentive to obedient. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not in any way suggesting that fear is the strongest motivator or the most enduring motivator, for it certainly is not. Love is vastly more powerful as a motivator than fear. But nonetheless, there is a place for fear. And uh, for a few moments, I'd like to ask you just to think with me biblically on this subject of fear. Let me give you a series of scripture that you ought to pay attention to. Now, in the passage itself, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges, According to each man's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Now that is not suggesting that when you become a believer, you can throw out this whole matter of fear. Now this passage is addressed to believers it, notice how perfectly plain it is. If you address as Father, Abba, Father, Father, my Father, if you know God is your Father, don't you dare forget that he is an impartial judge. Now look what I just told you about my sweet wife. That judge could not have been called impartial. He gave in to my wife's tear. He did not institute justice. She didn't question even that she was going 45 miles an hour. What she questioned was, was there a sign? And she had gone back and checked, and there was. <laughs> so an impartial judge would have said, forget the tears, they don't count in the court of law. You have to pay this fine. But now our God will never be moved by our tears. If we stand in front, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean it, I wish I had done otherwise. No, it won't make a particle of difference. 
He is truly the impartial judge, and we are indeed to spend all the days of our sojourn on earth in fear. A long time ago, after thinking a great deal on the subject of fear, a church in our area in Illinois asked if I could come and preach on three Sundays. And it happened to be at a time when I was not traveling uh, much, and so I went. And I thought, now, I've got three sermons on the subject of fear. And let me tell you what they were. Number one. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Very sound biblical truth. Number two, the fear of God is the greatest strength against personal wickedness. And number three, the fear of God is the only source of social justice. Do you know what those people thought about my sermons? They came up to me and said, we don't believe in the God you have to fear. Do you? Years after that event, there was an elderly, godly gentleman in that congregation would come by to visit me maybe once a year or so. And every time he came in, he would say, Do you remember when you were at my church? Yes. Do you know that every time your name comes up, those people fly into a rage and say, We don't like that man and we don't believe in a God you have to fear. But again, I ask, do you, could you say that as a result of your fear of God, God himself has made you wise? Is not that which makes us so deeply sorrowful concerning our political leaders, the fact that although they are educated, they are unwise. They make decisions that are utterly stupid. Time after time after time. If you are yourself without the fear of God, you are also without the wisdom of God. In the light of that, may I urge you very, very strongly to take a season soon in which you study what the Bible says about the fear of God. It is Perfectly astonishing. I have some notes here. I, I told you last night you're like a magnet. I like to come down, but uh, I, I, I got to look at my notes here. Let, 
let me just show you what I what I've got here. You say, what's all that? References to the fear of God. Dozens, dozens, and dozens. Let me just give you a few. Psalm, or this verse that we're looking at, 117. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Deuteronomy 10, 12. What does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and to serve him with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him. Get those words. Serve him and cling to him. Oh God, I need you desperately. I am hopeless without you. You have every reason to punish me forever for my sin. But I will not let you go. You alone are my hope. How many of you cling to God? Deuteronomy 13, 4. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. 